morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I am going to open us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are the God who is with us, and you are with us this morning. You are with our sisters who couldn't be with us this morning. You are with the little ones um, that they may be caring for. You are with the family members who might um, need our sisters' attention today. Um, You are with them um, in the midst, uh, whatever of whatever it is um, that is occupying their minds and our minds. Um, Thank you for being with us. I ask that you would allow us in these moments to set aside what it is that might be occupying our minds, that you would allow us to engage with your word and be reminded of your hand of providence in our lives, even in the ordinary moments. And would you use this time, Father, with our sisters um, as we listen to your word and as we discuss, would you use this time to continue molding and shaping us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus? And would you use this time to challenge and change and correct us um, where necessary? And we will be sure and certain to give you all the praise and honor and glory due your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, So as we have been saying for a number of months now, um, we can say this together this morning, God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. And just briefly, um, I'm going to review just the last few lessons that we've had. Um, In Esther 3... Um, you might remember that we talked about middle places and um, where it might be that you are in a middle place right now, middle places where we can't even see a light coming at the end of the tunnel. Um, We might not even be able to imagine what redemption could look like in that middle place. And then in chapter four, um, remember we encountered Mordecai as he engaged in corporate weeping and mourning. He tore his clothes. And if you remember, um, Kristen um, mentioned how there there is a connection between Esther 4 and Joel 2, verses 10 through 12, and how in um, even without acknowledging the name of God, by connecting with these words and phrases from Esther 4 back to Joel 2, um, that the biblical author is saying, God is here. God is here, and he is inviting us to consider what if uh, perhaps this might be that you might be the person through whom God chooses to bring his deliverance. And then in chapter 5, um, we saw that pressure um, that Esther was experiencing as um, she responded to what Mordecai invites her to in Esther 4. Um, we see that the pressure um, of the situation really began to reveal what was in Esther's heart. Um, and she chose to act on what may have been faith the size 
of a grain of mustard seed. Um, and she invites Xerxes and Haman um, to a banquet and then invites them again. Um, and so as we go through chapter six, if you remember nothing else from this lesson, I hope that you will remember this, that God uses ordinary events of our lives to move forward his redemptive plan. God uses the ordinary events of our lives to move forward his redemptive plan. So you may recall that the story of Esther is situated around a particular literary device called peripety, um, meaning that the plot unfolds in one particular direction, but there's a, a point in the story when all of a sudden there is a reversal and the plot then moves on a completely different trajectory. A couple weeks ago, Kristen showed us this slide. And so finally, as we hit Esther 6, we are now down at that bottom point. We are at the peripety. It's the pivotal point in a story that brings a reversal. We've finally reached this point. So let's consider the chapter as, that we studied for today's lesson. And it starts in Esther 6, verse 1. That night, the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so that it could be read to him. And then, in verse 3, there's a surprising discovery. King Xerxes has just found out that Mordecai had, uh, he's been reminded, I'm sorry, that Mordecai had uncovered an assassination plot and hadn't been able to to thwart that assassination plot. And so Xerxes says, what reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? And his attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. So this would have been shocking to Xerxes that nothing had been done for someone who had thwarted an assassination plot because um, it was very important in days of palace intrigue to reward those who had shown loyalty to the king. It would be important because it would act as um, incentive for others to um, show loyalty to the king. And it would also act as deterrent um, to those who would want to come, come against the king. And so for Xerxes to, to not only have missed a chance to reward him, but to, it has been at this point more than five years that Mordecai has been waiting. And so it's shocking to Xerxes that um, Mordecai has not been rewarded. And so then we see in verses four to nine um, that there's an early visitor to um, the king's rooms. And if you recall, at this point, Haman is determined to arrive early to speak to King Xerxes and to settle the problem of Mordecai once and for all. Um, he is sure and certain that Xerxes will be ready to agree with his desire to execute Mordecai right away. And so then we find... Um, after Haman has walked in and Xerxes immediately says, oh, great, how would you want, um, how, what's the best way to honor somebody 
that the king wants to honor. And so um, obviously Haman says, well, there could be nobody else that he wants to honor better than me. So, and he gives this long list, including um, put royal robes that you, King Xerxes, have worn, put those onto this man, take a horse that you have ridden, and allow this man to ride on it. And just a side note, um, just as we mentioned a couple minutes ago, that it is God who gives us our identity, right? Um, In Haman saying, let that man wear the royal robes and ride on the royal horse that you have ridden on, that the robes that you have worn. Haman, and the belief would have been at that time that if you were to wear something that the king had worn, you were taking on the identity of the king. Um, and, um, and because they believed that royalty was also divinity, that um, Haman would have believed that he was putting on or at least getting a smidge of the, the divinity of the king. And so Haman is grasping in his desire and his call for these things, he's grasping for his identity. But we know that it is God who defines our identity. So just another way that Haman is showing himself to be in complete opposition to Um, to the one true God. And so then here in verse 10, we see the humiliating development. Excellent, the king said to Haman, quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace, leave out nothing you have suggested. And so Haman does it. He leads Mordecai around the city, proclaiming this is what happens to the man who the king desires to honor over and over again. Can't you just imagine the shame and the humiliation each time he proclaims this about Mordecai, the one he wanted to kill? Another layer of shame and humiliation is falling on Haman. And then he scurries home. And we see that now there is a reversal of understanding. Um, Because when Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. So um, I'm one of those people that always believes a timeline is wonderful and helpful and it's a great tool. Um, But particularly in Esther, a timeline is very important because in the structure of this particular story, um, the structure plays as significant a role in conveying the message of Esther as the content does. And so... Um, So what is the timeline? Well, remember, um, Mordecai thwarted the plot, and then right when we expected him to be promoted, Haman was promoted. Um, And you can go back to that Peripety slide and and, um, start to see this downward slope of Mordecai and the Jewish people. And now, here we are at the center point 
And we know because it's peripety that the trajectory is going to change. But it's all in the waiting, right? Again, it's more than five and a half years since Mordecai has participated in thwarting the plot of uh, the assassination plot. Um, and during that five years, um, or Yes, and during that five years, um, we saw Esther 3, right? And that's when Haman has um, thrown the dice and the lots had fallen on, um, they had chosen the death date, and um, there's the waiting, though. Um, the death date wasn't to come for another almost year after that date had been chosen. And so in that waiting time, God's hand is moving. Um, and again, in Esther 5, there is a putting off of what we might consider the actual event. So Esther goes before the king and he says, what would you like up to half of my kingdom? And she says, well, I'd like you to come to a banquet. And then when she's at the banquet, um, the king says again, what would you like up to half my kingdom? And she says, well, um, why don't you come to a second banquet? And then at the end of chapter five, we're left um, wondering what is going to happen um, because we're waiting between the first banquet and the second banquet. Um, and so um, the, se and the second banquet isn't going to happen until chapter 7. So we have this whole time of waiting, wondering um, what, what is going to happen, um, where might we see the salvation of God and deliverance um, that he will bring, but we're kind of left um, hanging. Um, it's a cliffhanger again. But in that hiddenness, in the hiddenness of the God that we don't see his name, we don't see um, miraculous events. We know that he's working as we continue to wait. So let's picture the telling of Esther as if it were a play. At the end of Esther 5, Haman hurries home, conflicted. He's so full of pride and arrogance at being invited by the, the queen to not one, but two exclusive banquets. But he's also so full of rage at the audacity of Mordecai to snub him. And the curtain closes on chapter 5 as Haman gathers his wife Suresh and his friends who then counsel Haman to set up a tall pole on which to impale Mordecai. So at the end of chapter 5, we are left once again waiting to see what will happen. How will Yahweh bring salvation? Why does Haman get to keep plotting evil against Mordecai? And then the curtain opens on Xerxes having a sleepless night. So at first glance, this might seem a rather odd aside to the movement of the, of the plot. I mean, great, finally Mordecai is going to be remembered. He's been waiting for more than five years. And at this point, maybe Mordecai has given up hope that he would even ever be rewarded. At, least, at the very least, the slight has probably lost importance in his mind. There are more important things to, to be concerned about. I mean, you know, the deliverance of his people. But in the gap between Esther 5 and Esther 6, it is God who causes the pivot. So here we, here we are again, the peripety. While the curtain is closed... 
And then even during the first few minutes of the next scene, when no human agency is involved, meaning literally nothing is happening except that the king can't sleep. There's no decisions being made. There's no action happening. Nothing is being um, decided upon by a human. No human agency is involved. The whole story shifts and the great reversal begins to be revealed. Here again, we see that the structure of the story plays a significant role, as significant a role in conveying the message of Esther as the content does. So now the reversal begins to take shape. It's in seeing that Mordecai's story is changing and that the story of God's covenant people is changing that we are able to look more closely and see that the pivotal moment, the peripety, comes by the hand of the God who is not mentioned, who seems hidden, but who will faithfully fulfill his covenant promises through his providence, even when his people are in exile for the very reason that they have broken his covenant. The shift does not happen when Esther becomes queen. The shift does not happen when Mordecai displays loyalty to the king. The shift does not happen when Esther chooses to go to the king with the determination of, if I perish, I perish. No, the shift, the pivot, the peripety happens when no one but God could have made it happen. The king couldn't sleep. God is working in the waiting. He is working in the hard. He is working as things seem to get worse rather than better. He is working when it seems nothing can be done. He is even working when specific choices that I have made have landed me in the terrible situation in which I currently find myself. The king's sleepless night as the pivot point of the whole story reminds us that God uses the ordinary events of our lives to move forward his redemptive plan. Let's not forget that all of scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Esther is a part of that story. God preserves his covenant people through whom Jesus would then be born to offer salvation to the entire world. In Esther, God was the catalyst for the reversal. The same is true for us and for all of humanity. God has provided the pivot point of all of history. We're told in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when the right time came, peripety, it's the peripety of all of history, but when the right time came, God sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So I wonder... Where on the line of the story, of your story, where are you? So just as all of scripture has the meta story that um, all scripture leads to Jesus, so too we all have a meta story in our lives. Each meta story told through countless scenes and episodes 
All of our meta stories hinge on our response to the ultimate pivot moment in history, the ultimate pivot person in history. So where in that meta story are you? Have you recognized that ultimate salvation is found in acknowledging and confessing that Jesus is the one true God and he is the only way to salvation? How has that pivot impacted your life and changed the course of your story? How has that pivot changed the way that you orient your life? Let me ask that again. How has that pivot, the ultimate pivot in all of history, how has that impacted your life? And how has that changed the way that you orient your life? But our lives are not only just made up of a meta story, right? We each have seasonal stories that are happening at all times. And even in those seasonal stories, we need pivot moments. As we have studied the last several chapters of Esther, we have been invited to consider where it is that we are currently waiting for salvation or deliverance. Are we in a middle place? Has the Holy Spirit brought you to a point of crisis that has required a new resolve in following him? Has the pressure of a particular situation revealed work that needs to be done, confession that needs to happen, grace that needs to be received, care that needs to be accepted? In what way are you waiting for a pivot. The thing is, as we look at Esther, and even as we look at our own lives, the pivot, the peripety, doesn't conclude the trial. Esther, Mordecai, and the rest of God's covenant people had months and months of waiting to see the promise of deliverance become a reality. The reversal has begun to be revealed, and yet there continues to be a waiting. In our own lives, in our current situations that feel like sandpaper or a pit or a dead end or a big, huge question, it's possible that we have experienced and can even identify that things have shifted and yet there is still heartache to navigate and life that has to be lived between the hard places. Grief isn't tidy or tame. Loss, betrayal, broken relationships, life-threatening or even life-taking illness the pivot allows us to see the light in the circumstances, but it doesn't remove the trial. There is still waiting. There is still work to be done. But we can now see the light. Where is the pivot? And where are you? Where can you see that God uses the ordinary events of our lives to move forward his redemptive plan?
Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you for your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness. I thank you that you do use the ordinary events in our lives to move forward your redemptive plan, your redemptive story. I thank you that you choose to invite us into your work and you invite us to participate participate in your plan. Come and be among us, Holy Spirit, as we discuss in our groups what it is that you are doing in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.